Hello and welcome to IOM3 Investigates, the podcast series of the Institute of Materials, Minerals and Mining. We are one of the UK's major science and engineering institutions and our activities are focused on the promotion and development of all aspects of the materials cycle. These include the science, design, engineering and technology of materials, minerals and mining and their practical applications. We facilitate qualifications, professional recognition and development, share knowledge and provide networking services to a global membership and wider community. We hope you enjoy our podcast series. Hello and welcome to IM3 Investigates. I'm Rupal Mehta, editor of the Institute's member magazines Materials World and Clay Technology. And today I'm hosting a podcast on sustainability in the built environment. I have with me four prolific speakers in this area. Danielle Densley-Tingley, Senior Lecturer in Architectural Engineering at the University of Sheffield, with a focus on sustainable design solutions and material impacts. Flavi Laris, Chair of the IOM3 Construction Materials Group and Associate Director at the Building Research Establishment. Kat Scott, Senior Architectural Assistant at DRMM Architects, Steering Group Member for Architects Declare UK, and leading the Circular Economy Workstream at the London Energy Transformation Initiative. And finally, Philip Gray, Environmental Design Director and Head of Sustainability at the Practice Building Design Partnership and current Chair of the Islington Sustainable Energy Partnership. So welcome to you all. Thank you for joining me. So if we can kick off what is a large topic that covers the full life cycle of the structure from raw material to end of life and even construction products packaging, looking at resource efficiency, whole life carbon, technical performance of the building, but also areas such as health and well-being and social value. Could you please talk me through individually what does sustainability in the built environment mean to each of you and what has sparked your passion in this area? If we can kick off with um, Danielle, please. Yeah, so for me, um, sustainability in the built environment is really about how do we deliver low to zero whole life carbon. And that's really the focus of my research. And that's why I got excited about kind of moving into this space, because I'm really interested in how circular economy strategies actually help deliver, ideally, zero whole life carbon. Um, I became interested in the area when I was finishing up my degree in structural engineering and architecture, largely because I felt like I wanted to make a positive difference in my work and how we shape the built environment. So building off of that, I started a PhD that focused on design for deconstruction, which is really looking about how we design for future reuse to kind of minimise our, our need for materials going forward and reducing body carbon. And my career is built from there, really. So moving on to yourself, Flavi. Yes, good morning. I mean, for me, sustainability in the built environment is um, is a very broad topic. It covers so many different aspects and you've covered some into your introduction. So I'm very interested in the whole life carbon. That's a topic that I've been working on for many years, um, but also looking into the health and well-being and the of the occupants inside the building so that we don't create the spaces which are uh, very sustainable and maybe brim rated, for example, and but actually where you just put occupants into them and you don't consider their well-being and their how they can the building can work best for them. And then also interested in kind of the aspects of actually, if you build a building now, is that going to be suitable for the future? We can't afford to continue building for the sake of building. We need to look into the continuity of uh, of these buildings and what will happen to them next. Can you adapt them? Can you create a building that can be transformed from maybe from a school to residential? Or, you know, we're looking at the pandemic at the moment and how it's transformed London, where we've got lots of offices, uh, quite a lot of them are 
currently empty, can we use those buildings for different applications? So I am interested into all these different aspects. It looks like there's quite a lot of good synergy between what you talked about and what Danielle talked about. So we can definitely touch on that, that later. So kind of moving on to Kat, if you can talk a bit about what's um, prompted your interest in this area and your passion. Of course. Hi, nice to be here. In terms of my feelings about sustainability and passion for it, I feel as though time has come for us to rethink our concept of sustainability and understanding of it in light of recent years and our knowledge of the climate and biodiversity emergencies we face. I think we need to be moving forward towards making things that are not just less bad or net zero or neutral impact, but actually towards creating positive impacts through what we do and bettering the environment for people and for other species and wider ecosystems. We know that the environment is hugely impactful on the planet, and we've known this for a really long time. And it's also where we spend most of our time, whether it's the 90% or so of our time that we spend indoors or, or for leisure, the public spaces and cultural entertainment centres that we spend so much of our time in outside of our homes. So the built environment shapes our perception and worldview. And as people increasingly spend time away from nature or detached from nature in kind of urban places in built environment, I believe that they grow less and less of a feeling of responsibility for the natural environment that they have such a huge impact on. So I think that's something that we need to start to be addressing more and more in our industry. It wasn't until I started studying my master's at UCL and my research dissertation, which I wrote um, looking at architecture in the context of the Anthropocene. But I really started to take note of how little had changed throughout the time that I'd been ed- educated and how there's still such a lot of progress to be taken. So I started to realise that actually I had some agency knowing the impact that our industry has on the planet and that I actually have some power to start doing something. So I signed up to volunteer for Letty um, and helped to develop guidance on embodied and whole life carbon. And then DRMM signed up to Architects Declare and that shifted things again because it gave me the scope and agency to ask for more time to dedicate towards driving strategy and implementation of change in our office um, and taking on more outward facing roles in terms of joining the Architects Declare steering group, for example. So it's been a kind of accidental natural progression and probably initially out of a bit of naivety that other people were dealing with this problem and that it wasn't something that I, I, a humble architecture professional, would would have to worry about. And just a moment of realisation a few years ago that actually I had a really important power to affect change in the decisions that I make in the work that I do. Thanks, Kat. That's really interesting. I think that point about the amount of time we spent indoors has probably been so much more heightened in the past year. And, and in a way, that maybe might put the spotlight back on how important the built environment is. If we can move on to Philip, if you can talk a bit about your kind of interest in this area. Hi, yes, thanks for uh, inviting me to join you today. Um, I'm asked this question a lot and I don't I don't have a firm answer, but I think, I speculate that it's a product, my interest in the, in the whole sustainability agenda is a product of uh, being a Milton Keynesian born and bred in the planned chaos of a new town, but possibly an arguably first generation, I'd suspect. There are lots of critics of Milton Keynes, but actually the Development Corporation uh, did some very interesting things um, in terms of their planning policies, development policies, uh, which I think really kickstarted my interest in, I suppose, broadly speaking, efficiency, how resources move around, how people move around, and indeed the whole sort of raison d'etre for a new town, you know, the, the concept of growth 
and supporting that growth sustainably. So I think sort of subconsciously that trickled in into my mindset. So taking that on a step, then my undergrad was, I suppose, sustainable development. It was, it was really focused on growth in developing, developing countries and developing communities and how, and how that can be supported, the, the importance of the five or six capitals, depending on who you speak to, um, in, you know, in meeting people's fundamental needs. And then that took me on a step again in my master's to, to I suppose, exploring and interrogating the urban environment um, and my sustainable cities postgrad degree, really exploring yeah, policy, strategy, design, all these sorts of factors that can that can help to frame and shape the way we behave and the way cities function. Uh, I, I mean, put simply, what is sustainability to me? What does it mean to me? It is about supporting life. It's nature, it's it's the biodiversity, it's, it's supporting, supporting our existence. Thanks, Phil. Moving on from that, where are you individually focusing your efforts? You know, we've, you've discussed what's provoked your passion. We've obviously said at the start, it's such a big area. If you can kind of talk through a little bit about wh- where you've been focusing your efforts and, and how, that'd be great. I guess if we, if we start with Flavi. Obviously, as I'm kind of part of the um, uh, construction materials group, my main interest has been around materials. But actually, it's not just materials because in sustainability, it's not but looking just individual materials. It's important to look at those materials within the context of their use. So whether it's a, a building or a bridge or an asset or you know an infrastructure project. And it's really important because all the materials I've got placed and a role to play into these projects and it's how you put them together in order to create your solution that is the very important aspects when i um as i said when i started at BRE, I was looking into recycled materials and to different kind of construction projects and products and i i thought that was quite interesting because we thought that was great we were diverting some waste from uh from one industry and looking into some application in another sector but i thought actually what was quite important is to take a step back from that and really look into the real benefits and whether that was the right solution. And so the measurements became very important for me. So kind of measuring the benefits and making sure that you are looking into uh, the different aspects throughout the whole life of the product of the building in order to deliver the best solution. So that's why I spend so much time looking to life cycle assessments and, and methods in which you can, you know, and tools that you can uh, use and deliver to help the industry to make decisions without themselves needing to become LCA experts, because it's quite a tricky topic. And so how do you make this knowledge available to, uh, to a wider, wider range of people so you enable the industry to make their own calculations without the need of, the, to, of bringing back the experts, while at the same time being rigorous into the applications? And that, to me, it's quite important is to kind of understand how you can pick these different aspects, enable that measurements, which will then enable, hopefully, the benchmark in some cases. I know everybody's desperate at the moment to understand how do you benchmark the embodied environmental impact of buildings. It's not very easy. There's so many different approaches, but in some ways that's a key part to enable the improvements, understanding what good looks like, and then pushing the boundaries and always evolving. I know the BRE introduced its BREAM, I hope I got that pronunciation right, um, quite some time ago as a kind of sustainability standard. How have you felt the impact of that? Do you feel like there was strong take-up of that? And what is that to someone who's kind of not in the know? So BREAM or BREAM, um, I I don't really mind either way. (laughs) It's an approach by which you can measure the performances of a building in terms of environmental aspects but also some social and financial aspects as well but the idea is that 
it's in some ways a, a balance scorecard which enables the user to consider different aspects of the building. So performance, so from energy to materials to water, waste and, and etc. And in the end, you end up with a final score, which is a representation so of how well you're your work has been has been done or evaluated so good very good excellent outstanding what i think is quite interesting is that if you look into not just bream but you know the american equivalent lead but also all sorts of different building level assessments there's been a real exponential rise of the uptake of these uh different schemes which to me kind of shows the level of interest is growing in in the industry and it's very reassuring there's about half a million buildings that have been certified to build to BRIM and about two million that have been registered. So it is quite a large impact. And that's in about nearly 80 countries around the world. So it is it is significant, but it's not all the buildings uh, and more work needs to be done to kind of bring the whole industry together. But what's interesting about BRIM as well is to look into the evolution of the standard from where it was when it was first launched and the way it looks nowadays, and it's been changing as the industry has been evolving. And it's trying to move and evolve and being revised to to really push the boundaries towards the top, but at the same time, bringing the whole industry together. So you can't set targets that are so high that nobody can achieve them, but you are enabling the industry to kind of take a step change, really. I would say that I've been quite lucky that I've been able to be quite unfocused. I've been lucky wearing a few different hats and having a few fingers in different pies has meant that I've been able to think about quite a broad spectrum of themes and issues and so on. So I guess the underlying unifying aspect of all of the things that I've been trying to do is just sharing knowledge and general kind of upskilling of the architecture profession and the construction industry. So for example, started out looking as part of the Embodied and Whole Life Carbon Work Stream at Letty, we co-wrote a piece of guidance, which was the Embodied Carbon Primer, which um, was released in conjunction with the Climate Emergency Design Guide, which I think was quite a landmark piece of guidance for the industry. I've then been working with a group of really amazing experts trying to progress Letty's guidance for circular economy, whereas through things like Architects Declare, it's been more about broad set of areas that we have asked our signatories to sign up to. So generally upskilling on all of those fronts and trying to understand what our practices who have declared a climate emergency need. And actually for that, it's been less about uh, release of guidance so far, although we've got a practice guidance coming out soon, which we're just in the stages of reviewing now with expert reviewers, which will be kind of guidance for how businesses should operate, as well as how to approach design projects. Um, so trying to fill a space that maybe hasn't been addressed yet. But generally, it's been more about kind of bringing bottom up sense of um, kind of mentorship and relationship between practices. So we've been running regional meetings, for example, which we've been holding in 10 different regions around the UK uh, and also building up a sister initiatives all around the world. So starting to share knowledge, not just practice to practice, but in centering around local issues and our regions that we're in. Um, And also then across borders, trying to share knowledge and best practice approaches that are being adopted worldwide. So in in that respect, I think trying wherever possible to get people talking to each other and sharing their knowledge. Because I think historically in our industry, um, being a sustainability pioneer has been kind of a competitive advantage. But we're at a point now where we can't afford for people to be competing on that front. We need people to be sharing how do we all get to be at the same level? We all need to be doing this. We all need to bring each other along. And for some people, some practices 
and businesses, that's going to be harder than for others. Um, so we need wherever possible to try and be inclusive and bring everyone on a journey all together, which isn't easy in its own way. Um, a nice challenge to have, I think. But what's been really great is it grew from an initial group, which was um, based on the Sterling Prize winning architect at that time, the cohort of practices who had won the Sterling Prize. And that gave it a kind of bit of gusto and a splash in the media that big practices had signed up to it. And then now we're at a point where over 1,000 practices in the UK have signed up, which is huge in terms of the number of people that they employ and the amount of conversations that hopefully that started. But then that as an initiative has grown into a wider umbrella organisation called Construction Declares. So under that, we've got lots of other disciplines. So um, we've got our civil engineering arm and we've just recently launched our interior design arm and all different contractors and all different parts of the construction profession, all similarly declaring a climate and biodiversity emergency now. So what's really interesting about Architects Declare is it's businesses signing up to something and it's setting some KPIs essentially for those businesses to try and achieve. And what we're finding is whether we're involved in it or not, the media is then holding practices to account um, for whether they are deemed to be fulfilling their commitments. And it's, it's creating a sense of kind of scope for criticizing or kind of holding to account businesses in terms of how they're trying to fulfill and seek to fulfill these declaration points where I think if that initiative hadn't started, many fewer of us would have thought that we would be in a position that we would be trying to do whole life carbon assessments in-house or tackling embodied carbon in our design projects. So I think it's just been a kind of accelerator or a catalyst for change, which I think is great. And now it's in 26 or so countries worldwide. So it's had a big rippling effect, hopefully with over 6,000, I think 6,450 businesses worldwide now under that construction declares umbrella. I think just to come back to your, your earlier point about how we, we all need to be f- sort of fighting and competing against the, the macro issue of climate change rather than each other, I think is, is absolutely spot on. But what the Architects Declare movement has done or the Construction Declare movement has done is highlight and provide that transparency across businesses where you can see what your competitors are committing to. And that, that in itself has generated a bit of, you know, a bit of com- competition between, between design firms to say, well, if they're doing it, we need to do it too. And that, you know, that's a really positive thing. I think that just, you know, that sort of encouragement to pick common battles, I suppose. Yeah, the right kind of healthy competition of um, we all need to look like we're doing the right thing. And then once you start looking like you're doing the right thing, you actually need to start doing the right thing. And so Phil, I mean, that brings us neatly on to kind of your work at at BDP, but also um, as part of kind of Architects Declare. and, And I know you're part of another London group as well. So yeah, please do do talk to us more about what, what you've been up to in this space. Lots. <laughs> I mean, we're, we're all talking about the same things. We're here to obviously, we're all talking uh, about sort of common objectives and common ambition. And, and so is the stuff that Flavi and, and Danny and or Wilt or Ryan Kat spoke about, I think will be fairly common. At BDP, I lead a team, a fairly small team of specialist consultants but about 18 months ago, I stood up in front of our London studio, you know, the three or 400 people we've got in the studio and said, actually, my ambition, my, you know, my sort of three or four year plan is to sort of do me and my team out of a job. I don't see why we should be stood at the front here as specialists. This should be stuff that you all can do and do do as a, just as a matter of course. You, don't, you shouldn't need me. You shouldn't need my team, which perhaps is a bit of a perverse, uh, perverse approach, but it was, it, it was intentionally you know, controversial. Um, so, so really what I've been trying to do and, and you know, using the Architects Declare and all of these other you know, industry movements that are happening as a bit of a springboard is to make sustainability non-specialist. 
And we, uh, about a year ago, um, I managed to implement a new sustainability policy for the practice, which was built on some of those commitments that things like Architects Declare have been setting out. So again, it's a really good springboard to help us frame what we should and shouldn't be looking at. And we've spent the last year and we'll probably spend the next six months developing a whole suite of new tools and processes and procedures that us as a practice need need to get a better handle on. Fundamentally, you know, we're, we're trying to lessen the impact of our business and that's you know our business in you know occupying the studios we we live in as well as our business you know the, the project output so it's a long there's a long road ahead i think but we're, we are starting to make inroads and then i've been sat as the chairman of the islington sustainable energy partnership so our london studio is in islington um, this is a partnership that's been running for 15 or 20 years and it's really about trying to bring local business together to i guess share knowledge but also support them in some of their initiatives you know these these can be SMEs or even sole traders that just don't know where to look, don't know how to improve their performance or efficiency. So it's really just a networking organization. We have a steering committee that uh, that meets to sort of frame the direction and Islington have, have launched their, their zero carbon roadmap, their zero carbon strategy. So we're now looking at how we can reposition ourselves as an organization to support some of those wider Islington ambitions. Um, and, you know, obviously that joins up with GLA and London plan type stuff as well. So so uh, yeah, there's there's not enough of me at the moment, but I'm I'm hopeful that we can <laughs> we'll, we'll reduce in numbers over the coming months and years. Yeah, it sounds like you're spinning a lot of plates there. But interesting what you're saying about bringing it from kind of all the way down to the local level. So because ultimately that's where the things happen, and you know it, it needs to filter down. Um, I'm sure we're going to touch on that more later. But I think that's an interesting point to to note. This is where we kind of turn to Danny, really, and the work that, that, that you've been doing in this space. Yeah, so what, what Phil was saying really resonated with me, the idea of not needing sustainability professionals. You know, it should be part of the profession. Um, and I mean that across all construction. And that's something I've been working in across my teaching and research. As an academic, uh, we kind of naturally wear multiple hats. From a teaching perspective, one of my key roles is really trying to equip um, civil and structural engineering students, architectural engineering students, um, and our dual programme students, structural engineers and architects, with the skills to deliver low carbon buildings, be that low carbon structures or kind of passive design strategies, particularly trying to give them the knowledge of the assessment tools that Flavi was talking about that they can actually do these calculations at really early design stages and start to get a feel when they're comparing different design options, which it does have a higher impact. And then what sorts of design strategies can they deploy to start to reduce them? Because what I'm really keen that our kind of grads can do is to go out into the world and start to, you know, produce really good buildings that have a low impact and that maybe they influence their practices they go out into as well. So that side of things I think is so exciting because we've got more and more, you know, I started in this space back in 2009 and the transition over that kind of 11, 12 years has been ridiculous. When I started, we weren't talking about embodied carbon or design for deconstruction or any of that. And it's actually becoming much more mainstream. And I think that's really exciting. But one of the other things I've been trying to do as part of my research, uh, we developed a tool called Regenerate, which is trying to um, encourage circular economy strategies and the engagement of them within design of buildings. And this was particularly aimed at, at maybe those practices that don't have sustainability specialists in-house and those that kind of want a way in and are like, okay, we should be doing something, but what what could we do? So we launched that back in April last year. And it's been a really nice way of starting that conversation. Yes, there's some really challenging stuff in there that, you know, when I've spoken to design teams and they're like, but how do we do material passports? Like we've never done this before. 
it, it's deliberately challenging. It's trying to stimulate those conversations. And even if it's going then to your contractor and saying, well, could we build this into our bin when we're procuring stuff? Is that an option? And for the first project, maybe it won't be, but for the next one, it could be. And that wider discussion amongst the sector is really something we wanted to try and provoke. And then kind of more generally, some of my research topics, what I try and do is, is kind of ask the big questions that as an academic, I've probably got the time and space to be able to ask. So things like what's the circular economy potential of our existing built environment in the UK? Is it is an ongoing research project we've got? And there what we're trying to do is look at basically a series of case studies grouped into kind of different building types and say, okay, well, what build it, what materials have we got stocked in there already? And how do we then scale that to Sheffield and to the UK so that we almost have the idea of material banks of where you know our building stock is housing our resources of the future, but we need to know what those resources are and ideally where they are so that we can then start to use them going forward. So that's a, a big piece of research we're doing at the moment to try and look at that stock in the non-residential sector initially, partly because resi lasts a lot longer. So our homes, we've got one of the oldest building stocks in the um, UK compared to anywhere else in the world. So that's probably much slower turnover. But that does mean because we've got one of the oldest building stocks in the world that retrofit becomes really important. So some of my other work is looking at kind of the scale of retrofit we need, the whole life implications of retrofit, you know, how much of a difference does it make depending on what materials we choose. If you look at the whole of the UK, it makes a pretty big difference because we need to use a hell of a lot of materials to retrofit all of our building stock. And then we're also looking at methods to try and automate um, the recognition of different retrofit needs for different buildings. So that rather than having to have individuals go around and physically assess different buildings or have homeowners go, oh, I think I could do this to my home, but I don't really know. We're at the kind of first stages of looking at machine learning methods to recognize different components within buildings and then the thermal signature of buildings and potentially, you know, where you've maybe got problems uh, in the fabric. So a kind of a vast array of things that I, I dabble across, but all across whole life carbon, really. That's great. Thank you. And obviously that point about the teaching side of it, obviously and bringing the kind of next generation along is obviously really important. Building on that, and, and Phil's talked about kind of sustainability almost just being an Im- Im- implicit part of the process, and, and it's just a given. And, and Kat, obviously you mentioned right at the start that this isn't just about fulfilling the net zero initiative and, and fulfilling those obligations, but also it, in turn having a positive impact on the environment. So kind of considering all that, all that, how far do we think we've come? Where, where do we think we've made the most progress? In terms of progress that's been made, I think the fact that we're all here talking about all the work that we've been doing in whole life carbon, embodied carbon, and getting sustainability into the agenda, into our businesses or into our teaching shows that I think a huge amount of progress has been made, whether it's in the last three years, five years, 10 years. Um, so I think that's really brilliant. And I think our industry, as, as has already been touched on, now mainstream conversations are about all of these issues so I think getting these topics into the mainstream is a huge success and hopefully what I see this growing towards now will be that it's not just the construction industry who are using terms like embodied carbon whole life carbon understanding the difference between net zero and regenerative and all of these terms I think we need to have a a wider general public awareness of the impacts of the built environment on the planet and a general public view, um, understanding how we can contribute and make change. Because as, as has just been said by Danny, I think actually it's going to be the everyday person with their home and the decisions that they make in investing and retrofitting their homes that will be a huge part of where we move towards actually reaching our climate commitments as a country. 
And we need to get mainstream people talking about ground source heat pumps and solar panels and um, adding insulation to their homes and making better use of maybe space that they already have rather than doing extensions or knocking down their building um, and starting from scratch or, or moving into a bigger and bigger house for the sake of it. So I think we need to now push what's been quite a niche industry conversation to become something bigger nationwide human everyday man understanding what we're talking about here I think. As that consumer human layperson I guess two things that that's thrown up for me is the terminology that's being used in the industry is there a uniformity in how those terms are being used would be my first question and everyone's shaking their head so I think I've got my answer but we'll talk on that in a minute and then the second thing is okay how do we then make that tangible to the person who's renovating their home. So I think one of the ways I try and do that through our research is look at kind of uh, payback years, because that's quite a nice way of making it something quite, we're quite familiar with cost payback. So carbon payback feels like quite a natural uh, narrative. So when you're retrofitting, you know, how quickly is the embodied carbon, so the impacts of your PV, for example, going to take to pay back in the savings and carbon? And you can do exactly the same with insulation, with heat pumps, whatever it might be. So for me, that's a really nice way to translate. And actually, uh, slightly terrifyingly, I think probably with some of the strategies, the carbon pays back much faster than maybe the cost does. But maybe that's a good conversation then to have and go, but you're doing your bit for the planet. You're saving carbon almost you know, within a year with most of these strategies. I'm not sure there is a uniformity of language quite yet. But I think what is interesting is all these initiatives like the one led by Letty or, you know, some of the, the, the work that's been done by UKGBC and, and all these different construction declare is, is starting to have this debate and these conversations and understanding what that means. And I, and I think that then this, universe, this uniformity of language will, will start to come. I think it's about giving people confidence that it is possible to do something and to, and to make decisions and we all have a power to do some some calculations, some measurements, and, and therefore starting to have an impact. And I think this is what the message is coming out quite strongly and is quite interesting. I think if I look into the UK as a, as a country, it's quite interesting compared to some of our of the other countries in Europe, um, where governments have been taking quite strong leadership in sustainability and really kind of saying, for example, in, in France, they have said, right, for embedded carbon, this is how you do the calculations. That's the method. Embed those into, into some, some tools. So you've got some consistency. And then they've said you have to measure and you have to start doing it. I don't know that we have as much of um, a push from the government, but I think what we really have very strongly is all these groups coming together to, to really push the industry, which I think is very reassuring and very exciting. In terms of how we get the general public to care about this or know about this, I feel like we've almost got the lesson from coronavirus in terms of how data transparency, actually, people take real interest in graphs and, you know, seeing graphs going down over time. And I feel like the trackers that exist on, you know, BBC News or The Guardian, these kind of live infographic trackers, if we could only make more granular and more transparent data on how we're faring against our carbon budget, and make that granular to a kind of local scale, a local community scale, then I feel like when neighbourhoods are starting to form their neighbourhood plans and setting out local policies, they will be doing so in a much more informed way. And I feel like as soon as communities have the ability to see what their impact is, 
they will then start to use that to inform decision making. Unfortunately, I just don't think that this data exists in a way that is uh, relatable or tangible yet on that kind of scale. And I think that's where we need to try to be moving towards. We need to have a clear carbon budget every year, which is publicly shared in, in a really visible way explaining where the government's investment in whether that's saying we need 200,000 more homes or whether that's saying that we need to invest in nuclear war missiles or whether we need to um, whatnot. How does that and what infrastructure investment they're planning to do? How does that then mean the rest of things need to change to stay within our carbon budget? And what does that mean in my neighbourhood in Essex or your neighbourhood in Hertfordshire and the kind of decisions that we make as a community, whether we go ahead with building a new recycling centre or whether we go ahead with building a new train line or these types of things how do those small decisions even should my street come together and retrofit all of our identical 1970s houses making those decisions in the context of a wider thing I think is what's needed so I'm hoping that we'll learn from coronavirus and the way that we have seen how all of us making decisions has an impact on this massive scale We've, we've seen we've understood exponential mathematics as a society and we need to start applying that same logic of making small changes and flattening curves to um, unfortunately to our carbon footprint and to our climate impacts as well and I think people once they're explained these things in simple straightforward terms as we have done with coronavirus and as we have done with pandemic mathematic modeling I think people get it and we just need to start spelling it out I think more clearly more transparently I think just to just to sort of pick up on that, I I mean I would look at this this whole topic of debate from two slightly different angles. I think when we're looking at commercial developers or commercial development, there are commercial or financial levers in place to enforce, let's say, some of some of the decision making stuff. You know, it might be it might be development control, it might be you know taxation, whatever. At a local level, where I think there is real change required, I still don't think, you know, like John and Sally next door understand the impact of the decisions they're making, that it's not realized at that local level. We are told to replace our boilers with heat pumps. We understand why we're doing that. But actually, you know, is is that the right thing to do for our for our home? You know, we've then got to rip out all our pipe where we've got to change our radiators we, because we're delivering heat at a slightly different you know all, all of these technical implications which actually might have might have far more carbon impact than just having not done anything to start with yeah. <laughs> there is a whole debate around uh, i guess uh, yeah understanding the benefit of doing things or the disbenefit of doing things yeah could i jump in there as well i feel like um that's the part of the problem as well is that at the moment it's quite a niche interest for your like for your average person to retrofit their house to be whole life net zero carbon that that is quite a niche endeavor at the moment. I think what we need for that is to become mainstream and to benefit communities. Like I'm seeing in my own community, I received a letter through the door asking me whether I wanted to sign up to be part of a solar power scheme where we as a whole community are invited to enter our roof dimensions and viability of solar panels on our roofs into a, into a kind of auction, which then private companies will be bidding to provide. And there's, I think, over 4,000 households in my community who've said yes. And already in my community, I look around and I see that they've done this before because so many people have solar panels. And whether solar panels are right or not as an approach is another question. But I think the, the ability to bring together communities to have agency en masse, um, I think as with the pandemic, we're seeing people don't like it if they feel like they're the person who's abiding by the rules and doing the right thing and everyone else isn't. 
and they'll start to behave like everyone else. So what we need is for a mass understanding, for it to become mainstream, for there to be cost benefits of um, you know, mass supply of these products. We need investment in those industries and in upskilling of people to do the work so that it's not super expensive to retrofit your house. It's not a niche profession and that builders know how to do it and do it well. And it's not a cowboy kind of industry where people are getting bodged jobs of insulation that cause damp issues and kind of create a sense of mistrust and that actually this investment hasn't been worth my time or my money. It's given me more issues than I thought. So it's just, I think the issue needs to be addressed at scale and we can't expect that every person on their own is going to come to the realisation that they need to retrofit their home. I think the skills thing is a really interesting piece there because I think, you know, if you look at how many um, like skilled professionals there are to install heat pumps compared to boilers, the num- like tiny, tiny numbers of people that are equipped to install heat pumps. And actually, it's very hard to find a local installer because I looked and we need to make it easy for people, I think, as well. So there's the communication of making sure people want to act, but then it's when they try and act, don't make it, you know, this really difficult challenge to find someone that can install a heat pump. So it's making that side of things, I think, more accessible as well. And as Kat was saying, the neighborhood level could be a really interesting kind of intervention point because it means you've got a collective of people that are kind of seeking for a bigger, bigger, a, a bigger job, which might make it more cost effective. But it's also meaning you've kind of got that shared manpower in finding the right solution. So answering Phil's question of, is it right to, you know, tear out everything in my house and put a heat pump in? Well, actually, probably. But, you know, it, it's still worth doing those checks. And, you know, that there's been work that said, suggested loads of, you know, my heating system is oversized for what I need because I've got a new efficient boiler and old radiators and pipes. The radiators are far too big, which is great in terms of I have my heating on for like an hour a day, but it means I could shift to a heat pump much easier. But having that kind of narrative and conversations at a neighborhood level I think is really exciting, particularly where you've got similar home types. So the interventions are likely to be quite similar. I think it's really nice. So that brings us neatly onto what has probably become a really mainstream when we're talking about things is, is this term circular economy. That has become mainstream. So I guess there's maybe an opportunity to capitalise on that element of it because that has become quite tangible to the consumer now. What are the barriers and the enablers to kind of tackling circular economy principles in the built environment? Yeah, I think uh, circular economy is, is very interesting in terms of kind of having it, it pushing you to, to think in a slightly different way, but also hopefully kind of offers some fairly uh, straightforward answers and, and simpler answers in, to, to kind of enable to, to have a shift of um, of the way we do think, um, which is at the moment very linear. So we just kind of, the easiest way to do things is probably to extract some materials and then to, to manufacture them and then to use them and then to, to get rid of them. But actually, you know, the work that Danny is doing, for example, on the, on the materials flow and understanding where the materials are within the built environment that could be mined afterwards and used into other buildings is super interesting. And this, this whole collaboration, that is, that is key to, to the success and understanding how you've got it's so many little pieces of jigsaw that need to come together. We're working on the moment on a project called Circuit, which is a circular economy at city level. And it's with four different cities across Europe. So you've got Hamburg, Copenhagen, Vanta, which is just outside of Helsinki and London. 
And what's really interesting is I think it kind of brings into the context where you're talking about as well, cats, in terms of kind of making it at scale, I think it's quite important. So we're never going to really solve the problem if we're doing it just on a building by building uh, level. So understanding how you can do things on more kind of a, a local aspects, however you define local, because it could be local, could be just a, a street, it could be a neighborhood, it could be um, a borough, or it could be a whole city, which in London is huge. But it's understanding where it starts, what starts to make sense. And I think the collaboration and the engagement of the stakeholders throughout the whole supply chain is key to the success, to understanding this, coming up with some answers. And, and some of them are already there. And some of them are just some initiatives that need to be driven maybe by the councils or, you know, some others are just about kind of educating the, the kind of the system. So I think, you know, this is where it's just a, bringing the kind of this language and this uh, this way of thinking into the practice, no matter what your job is, is quite important. So, you know, teaching in universities and, and, and making people understand that you can all have a participation and a role to play is really important. We talked about the teaching in the universities, but we've also just talked about the breadth of, of the people involved in the sector and, and the different skills. So where does apprenticeships and more of the the trades training come into this does anyone kind of have any thoughts on that we're approaching a time where we're saying that we're no longer going to be putting gas boilers into our buildings anymore and there's a whole swathe of professionals who are tied to fossil fuel based industries who have the right kinds of skill sets whether that's mechanical thinking understanding systems in houses who can be very easily i think um, retrained and reskilled to be doing the kinds of ground source heat pumps and retrofitting skills that we need them to be. If only there was the framework and apprenticeships could be one, one approach, as you say, or an investment in training programs, for example, for even mature workers. You know, we don't want to exclude people who've been in business for, say, 20, 30 years doing gas boiler installation and find themselves without a job come 2035. Um, when we're not putting any in and there's none left for them to maintain. So I think there is already a very ready set of tradespersons who, if they were given the right investment from government, and if there was the incentive there for us to be building in those ways, whether um, tax incentives or so for people to be having those kinds of products in their homes, then there might also be just be a bit of organic, natural upskilling that they undertake themselves as they see the appeal of um, transitioning into those new sectors. Moving on from that, I mean, obviously, there is a big skills issue um, that we need to look at. And we've talked about kind of a lot of the progress we've made, but we've also talked about the challenges and the limitations. I wanted to turn to you, Flavie, because you are our IOM3 chair of the Construction Materials Group, which is a community of people working in various different construction materials, all with their different pros and cons and, and you know there's all kinds of things we can talk about in terms of the embodied carbon the recyclability potential etc cetera, etc cetera. but I just wanted to touch on what you thought was kind of from your workings within that group what was the kind of unifying factor in terms of the considerations around sustainability it is quite interesting because at the moment we put, we're having a lot of discussions about this because we're looking into some kind of activities and the articles that we are actually putting together into this very topic and for materials world. So that will come at some point. But really, what's for me, it's, what's important is we've got representations from different uh, product groups. And it's not about 
making a comparison about the different products. It's more about kind of what are the common factors and the different activities that are happening in all the different sectors. As I said before, I think that when we look into uh, construction materials, it's about looking into all the materials in and looking at all the kind of attributes that they have in order to create the building or the asset that you need in the end to fulfill the right purpose and the right you know applications, whether it's energy efficiency, acoustics, and there's a lot of different kind of parameters. Buildings are very, very complex units. And so all materials have got a role to play into all these different activities. What I think is quite interesting is that over the years, there's been different uh, initiatives taken by different sectors in order to address sustainability. And they've done that quite often at sector level because they recognize the need. It's a, a topic on which they need to work all together. So some sectors like the brick sectors, for example, have created some environmental product decorations. And they've done that at sector level to help the industry to have better quality data that can then feed into the embodied environmental impact of a whole building. The concrete sector have been working on their on their roadmap to look into improvements over time and looking into lots of different aspects of how they can reduce the use of Portland cement and, and using other materials to replace this part of their product, which they know is contributing to a large uh, part of their CO2 emissions. But they've also looked into responsible sourcing. So really understanding your supply chain is, is also super important, making sure that you haven't got any issues in your supply chains on where you, you're sourcing your materials. So in the same way that we've got fair trade for chocolate or coffee, in, in the construction sectors, we do need to look into where we're getting our materials from. Some of these materials come from very far away, and we need to be very conscious about the impact that we have on the communities in those parts of the world, but even in, in just in the UK in itself and looking into all these different aspects. There's quite a, a lot of activity happening, a lot of very interesting things going on, which I think is, is very interesting. And, and, the, and the common factors is the need to kind of harmonise the approaches and, and take into consideration so many different parameters. That kind of strikes also an interesting point about, I mean, I know as well, as Editor Materials World and working within the Institute, there is a lot of R&D going on in this space. There's a lot of work at industry level, but also kind of academia level into the materials themselves. But then how does that translate from those academics, those materials manufacturers to the likes of Kat and, and Phil who are designing these buildings? How, how, how does that information translate to them so they know and they can keep up to date with, with what's going on in, the, in these areas. Is there a conduit for that, or is that something that still needs to be improved on? I think there's uh, still room for improvements, really. There's a lot of activities happening in the academic world uh, that doesn't always translate into and happen in the market. I think one of the issue is, and it depends what we're referring to, but in terms of you know new materials, innovative materials, or you know use of recycling, some of the barriers to the use of these materials has just been that on site there's this nervousness about who will take responsibility if it doesn't go well, and how do you actually apply it and you know in practice, and do you have the right amount of supply of these materials to fulfill this project? And sometimes what's useful is when you have a client that is a bit more educated or willing to make a difference. So the Olympics in London, for example, has really created a step change in the industry. What they wanted was a low carbon solution, for example. So they 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 asked that question to the industry. 
and the industry came back with a response and then they kind of find solutions and build concrete plants on site, which minimize the amount of lorry movements and et cetera. So they really started to kind of think about this whole aspect. But there are others, Heathrow Expansion, when I was uh, going, they were very forward-thinking client and really wanting to make a difference and, and introduce some very new concept, which was pushing the industry. And there's a lot of others as well. And it's so the, these are the ones that will really help to make a difference and bring those innovations to the market. And Phil, do you want to bring your kind of architect's perspective into that from kind of the, the client side? Yeah, uh, yeah I, can, I can try and just add a bit to that. I mean, I think so, so the industry is, is you know, really, really up for doing all this stuff in the most part. But Flavie makes a really interesting point, which is around, I suppose, ownership or burden of risk. I think, you know, we as designers typically take things to a certain level and we will have made assumptions in systems, materials, components, whatever. But largely speaking, it's for the contractor, the person that's building it to decide what they use. And they ask us as designers if we're okay with their their product selection. Where I think the industry needs to shift is a bit of a sort of pain share construct where where we arrive at uh, you know the, the level of design detail state rib stage four whatever it is uh, and we say this is you know for example the amount of embodied carbon that we have calculated here if you can better that with your supply chain and your industry connections and expertise then you know we will support you by doing the analysis we need to do or having the conversations with the client team if that's what we need to do and if you can better it then we both take some share in that in that betterment if you fail, then we obviously, you know, we also have to take a bit of responsibility there as well. Because I think really interestingly, actually, what the net zero agenda is, is, is nothing new. It's just good design. But actually, all it has done is provided a frame, basically an accounting, an accountancy framework that now puts pound signs against poor design. And by, again, back to the conversations around transparency, by making that transparent to the client, by identifying that by making this decision, it's going to have this financial impact changes the way they think about decisions. And it's, and it's, I suppose, trying to shift that conversation from cost to value. And so how do we embed that value process, that value decision-making piece in, in the broader project procurement sphere? Because I think, I mean, the, the whole structure in my mind is, is really, it needs a, needs a significant overhaul. The way, you know, buildings, buildings are designed and built, I think it's really clunky and I think it could be hugely streamlined. But there are some, I think there are some quick and easy moves we could make that would, encourage and push things you know typically as well you know we're, we're looking at these innovators and these um, these new products and they're you know they're, again they're sole traders they're smes they, they they perhaps haven't thrown the money at the certification so you know where we might be looking for a you know an hpd or an epd or a you know declare label or something they probably haven't got that because they won't have paid the how many thousands of pounds to, to get it third party verified doesn't mean it's not any good so it's about i think it's about trying to encourage that that shift and there are a few there are a few platforms out there to help us do that but um I think really trying to sort of change the structure of that pain share would um, would be a, a, an easy step, an easy change to make. I'd like to really echo everything that Phil's just said, and I completely agree, and that really resonates with my experiences in practice. And that whole planning commitment on kind of materials and visual aesthetics of buildings, I think, hasn't yet been um, understood by councils. Perhaps the amount of power that they're wielding over what um, the kind of environmental performance of a building is on on the kind of granting of planning permission based on aesthetics and I think that's something that needs to change as well and maybe a more kind of dynamic approach to planning where on larger master plan or long-term schemes which take a long time to come into fruition through kind of phasing and so on 
that there's the ability for us to revise the appearance of the buildings more comfortably, less risk with less risk for our clients to ensure that we are able to use materials in the material bank at the point of constructing. So, for example, that one of the key barriers I see with circular economy at the moment is, for example, the costs of stockpiling materials from the point of you designing that building and saying we're going to build it in this material then the three-year lead time that you might need to keep, or even the six-month lead time, you might need to keep that amount of material somewhere, (laughs) physically pay someone to keep it in a shed somewhere so that it doesn't end up on landfill. That is a barrier at the moment. And we need to develop some form of infrastructure for accommodation of material banks and storage that then doesn't become on a project-by-project basis, but is on a more national, community, large-scale system thinking approach, I think. I mean, that brings us neatly onto the work that Danny, you've been doing on Regenerate, and, and obviously we talked about that earlier. I know part of what you're pushing forward is actually where the circular economy comes in is not just the, the, the material, but actually the building itself, right, if, of reusing that building in a different way. Can you just talk a bit more about that aspect of things? Because I know you've wrote a lovely article for us for materials well. This is why um, I know what, what you've been trying to say is you were saying that at the moment, government policy, you feel, incentivizes kind of demolition rather than reusing buildings or repurposing them. So if you can talk a bit more about that side of things. Yeah, sure. So I think it's a really important thing with the circular economy. So if the circular economy at its kind of heart is this idea of keeping materials at their highest value possible, that has got to be for all materials that are in a building as a building. So the longer we can retain buildings, um, and there's been various studies that have looked at individual buildings and the carbon cost of demolishing them and rebuilding versus retrofitting and repurposing. And there's definite carbon savings for retrofitting and repurposing the building because, you know, you've got so much embodied carbon that sits within these buildings. So I think that's just such a critical thing. And I know the Architects Journal have been pushing it with their kind of retrofit first campaign and things. So I think there is a lot of kind of gathering momentum around that as as a strategy. But what I think COVID gives us is is this opportunity to rethink our built environment in a way that if we've got these office buildings that, you know, we've got massively reduced capacity, so firms are going to need less space. What are we going to do with that space? And the idea of, well, let's not just demolish it. So there is, you know, talk of, oh, well, we should make it easier for those buildings to be demolished and rebuilt for new homes. And you're like, yeah, but we could maybe just try and repurpose those buildings to be the new homes. And I think looking at how we create really great places for people to be, whether live, work, play, you know, across that spectrum with what we already have is just so important. You know, the UK has a very low turnover of stock, admittedly, so maybe 1% of our stock turns over a year. So compared to developing regions, that, that is very low. But if we think not just for now, but that long term, we need buildings that, that last and that we can adapt and repurpose. And we need legislation that supports that. And maybe it doesn't just support it, but really incentivizes it, which we currently don't have. So for me, from a kind of government policy perspective, that's really what I want to see is make it hard for people to demolish. Like it shouldn't be put a demolishing permit in and your local council goes, oh, yeah, all right, you can demolish that building in the next six weeks. Make it so much harder. I mean, building on the government aspect, obviously, I know towards the end of last year, been a stipulation now that all public projects must have whole life carbon assessments um, and that includes embodied carbon. I mean, w- what are your relative perspectives on that? 
think Jane Anderson highlighted that on Twitter and it came as a bit of, of a surprise to those of us who are working in this field because it wasn't really something that had been announced. It seemed like it kind of snuck in there somehow. Don't know who slipped that in some <laughs> guidance, but I mean, I think it's great whether government departments actually know what they're talking about in those terms, whether that's been communicated with government departments who are procuring buildings. I'm not too sure, but we can certainly try to hold them to account if we're working on public buildings, then we'll, we'll know that we should be doing that. Um, I think progressing that to the next step, not just doing the assessment, but using that to inform how the design is improved upon is the next step. And that's not quite, I don't think, captured yet in the existing wording. I think, I think we're at the point where we're measuring on projects, figuring out what a baseline looks like for now. And then we need to ramp it up and say, OK, we're going to start improving on that baseline. And we have a data bank of all of the buildings, public buildings that have been constructed or are going to be constructed. And we can start using that to identify if there's a performance gap for embodied carbon, just as there is with operational carbon or the energy that we use to power our buildings. Because typically what we found with operational carbon is that we see that our modelling before a building is built in our design stage is actually optimistic compared to the reality of the situation, whether that's because of how humans actually use buildings being differently from how we thought that they should be using them. You know, people having the heating up higher than we thought that they would want to and, and having windows open and keeping the heating on, those kinds of silly things. Or whether it's actually fabric performance issues or um, in design build contracts, maybe materials have been swapped in that are different from what we'd specified and so on. I am pretty much certain that we will see a performance gap for embodied carbon. So I think we need to be doing as-built um, whole-life carbon assessments and monitoring um, whole-life carbon through a building's lifetime. And public sector buildings are perfect for that. You know, we're talking about infrastructure buildings where we have asset management, digital twins already. So we can be doing this stuff on large-scale government buildings and using that as a kind of research field, which then informs um, smaller scales of buildings where it's not so possible to do this kind of data asset management, for example, you wouldn't do that on your home unless you were a nerd, like maybe some of us are, but you would do it for a train piece of train infrastructure. And they are doing that on Crossrail, for example, and we could start adding on layers of information to the assets in these, in these government buildings to make sure that they're learning and then rolling that out more widely. And we need to be really careful here, I think, um, that the conversation doesn't become too dominated by carbon and carbon accounting and kind of perfecting the carbon calculation because it's so little in terms of what it looks at. I mean, carbon is quite a good metric because it, it can also correspond with other impacts, but we need to be careful, for example, when we're talking about battery power, we need to be trying to keep as large as possible the conversation and not become too, too obsessed and too good at being carbon accountants because at some point the grid will be decarbonized. All materials will be carbon zero, hopefully in, I don't know, 2050, 2060, 2100. I don't know. And we'll have 100% set for economy. Then we need to be really thinking, like, where is our scope of impact? Are we drawing a boundary around the UK? And are we forgetting all the impacts that we create in other countries around the world? And we're exporting all of our, our waste to them and they can just deal with it. Or are we actually looking at a really holistic view of our impacts on biodiversity, on other species, on water, on nature? I am completely with you, Kat. I agree. <laughs> I mean, we've got a real focus on carbon in this country, but actually some of the countries have already decarbonized quite a lot. Um, they're greed and they're not focusing on just on carbon. And I think ultimately it's about even when we've decarbonized our greed, it's all about how much we use and we need to do the same with less or less with less eventually. 
I mean, that raises an important point. I know, Danny, in your work on the Regenerate, there's, you've touched on things like material leasing and using materials themselves more efficiently. Drawing back to what has been a really difficult year for everyone, and we've mentioned COVID a few times, but I think it's really relevant to this sector as well, specifically because the big the big slogan that the government's put out is this build back better and the construction industry is an important element in that and in terms of the economic recovery. I think you've all touched on this separately about the opportunities that that may give us in terms of, I guess, I guess a reset, an opportunity to reevaluate, an opportunity to re- reuse or repurpose certain buildings. What are the roles of, you know, kind of things like modern methods of construction? We cover a lot in our magazine examples of, of waste materials from other sectors being reused in in construction materials, partly to to reduce the the use, as Flavi mentioned, of kind of Portland cement um, in concrete. And I just just wanted to get your perspective on on how these different technologies um, or R&D might play a part in this kind of reset and looking forward. I think one of the things we have to be quite careful about is where we're looking at, particularly if they're thinking of kind of waste materials, if we're using them in a way that is kind of either meaning that material can then be used again later, great. If we're producing more composite materials or or materials where we then don't know what's going to happen to them at end of life, I think probably all we're doing is delaying our problems. So for me, it's really important that that kind of end of life scenarios are really thought through at that design stage when we're going, okay, well, we're going to recycle this particular material and pop it in concrete. That's great. But if I then want to crush that concrete and use it as aggregate in the future, have I just contaminated that material and basically stopped me doing that? So for me, that's that's always a kind of approach that we really need to think about that and make sure that's that's included in our design. Uh, yeah, I think um, that's a really good point. I think when we're considering these sorts of things, you know, you're assuming that if you're throwing up a heavyweight structure, it's going to be stood there for a long time. Oh, you're hoping it's going to be stood there for a long time. And so I guess, you know, to some extent, we've got our fingers crossed that by the time we get to the point of pulling it down, if we ever pull it down, that you know, there may, there may be new systems and processes in place that help us recover more, uh, more value from, from those materials. But I think that whole end of life piece is just a bit of a, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a minefield of guesswork at the moment. We just don't know. I mean, we, in some instances, are, are putting things up that we, you know, we, we might expect to replace or repair within a, within a few years. But most part, we're talking probably 50, 20, 25 and upwards. And, you know, and the rate at which waste processing processes uh, are evolving we should and could expect to see mark, you know, the market respond to, to the need. You know, necessity is the mother of invention, isn't it? Right. So if we've got if we're if we're running out of stuff, we're going to have to find ways to recover stuff better than we do currently. You know, and we've already mentioned recycling, the word recycling a few times in this conversation. But what do we mean when we're talking about recycling? Usually we're talking about downcycling. And so I think again, it's back to that terminology. It's back to understanding what what it is we're we're trying to get out of this and and when we're looking at things like future flexibility and that extending lifespans of buildings that actually you're potentially pushing your embodied carbon up because your floor to floor heights are getting taller your structures getting potentially heavier to accommodate different functions and uses and interventions in the future so it's really it's a really difficult thing it's a really difficult nut to crack at the moment i think and, and with respect to the sort of the mmc the modern methods of construction aspect to me, that we're doing a lot of work with the NHS at the moment. These new HIP schemes that are coming through, that is a big thread of their ambition, uh, the NHS's ambition. And we're just not convinced it's being driven by environmental out- outcomes. It's being driven by con- construction programs and, and speeding up the delivery of 
And, you know, as we you know, making, a, again, a comparison with the car industry, modern engines are all sealed up, really difficult to get out, really difficult to do anything with because they're built in a really highly controlled factory. Similarly, if we're seeing bathroom pods, for example, or ensuite pods delivered to site, the likelihood is that everything's a composite, tucked away, glued in, bolted in. We're never going to be able to get it. If we want to replace something in that, the whole pod's coming out. Do you know what I mean? So, so and, and where's it come from? So in some instances, there again, we're back to that sort of ecosystem of pressures and risks and considerations that there just isn't a one-size-fits-all. And I think what you've just said there, Phil, is so true in terms of time. And at the moment, it feels as though time and quick and ease of construction is driving so many decisions. And I think going back to your original question about COVID and so on, I feel like at the moment, we've all had the great pause and we've all been living a much slower pace of life albeit digitally we might be operating very fast and having many more virtual meetings and so on. Actually, in our own lives, I think people have taken up baking, gardening and crafts and have started to learn the the kind of benefits of slowing down pace of life and having less things to be doing at any one time. Part of the problem we're facing is that construction processes are being developed that make it very easy to build very safely, very quickly buildings, which I'm just not sure will stand the test of time. We're seeing, for example, lots of buildings being demolished now that were only constructed 30, 40, 50 years ago. And that's such a shame that the methods of construction that we've started to adopt in, in the last few generations have not stood the test of time. And I think we need to be really careful that when we're building things, as, as Phil has said, we need to be careful to consider carbon impacts of designing long lasting buildings. But we also need to design our buildings for the materials that are in them and extending the lives of those materials for as long as possible. And I think we need to be looking back at historic architecture and the way, in, for example, with timber architecture, that we would have big roof overhangs protecting timber structures from rain and how we would design to elevate um, structures away from the ground from watering grass. And, you know, we need to be designing in a way that is treating all of the materials that we're using as a finite, precious resource, because that is what they are. That neatly brings me on to my next question in a way, because it goes full circle to where we slightly started, which was how we've all spent more time indoors and we're all far more in tune with how buildings make us feel and the importance of the contribution to our health and well-being. And I know, Flavie, you've been doing work in this area, so it'd be great to get your perspective. Yeah, I mean, in the in the last uh, oh, probably four years or so, we've been looking into um, the, the the aspects of biophilia, and, and I think Philip touched on on it as well. So it's a very interesting aspects about how you um, you can look into the design of a building in the, in the different way that we were before. In the, in a way, it's it's just designing better. It's how do you can bring some of the nature's principles inside the building. So it's not just putting plants everywhere and growing a forest on your, you know, on your floor area. It's more about kind of how how do you bring those kind of subtle kind of aspects that that we are naturally should be attached to or relate to, which is the uh, in a in a more natural environment. So for example, we got used to have artificial lighting. So we wake up, it's dark outside, we put the light on, it's on full blast and kind of, you know, it's it's not, and it's been known to not be very good for the way we kind of manage our circadian rhythm. So it's been really interesting. We are uh, at the moment in the process of refurbishing one of our buildings on our site, actually, on the Innovation Park. You're very welcome to come and have a look at it uh, when it's ready, but we are applying those biophilic principles to it. So it's looking, obviously, we're going to have, you know, plants and et cetera, but it's looking into the patterns and creating spaces and areas through patterns and right, the right colours that are connected more to kind of the environment in which you need to be in. 
having the right lighting systems and having um, the right acoustics throughout the building. So it is very interesting. And I do think that actually with this pandemic, we are now getting used to working from home. So the office will have to find a way of, to some extent, I mean, it doesn't suit all the purposes, but the the office will need to kind of come and, and create, for me, a different purpose so what is the reason that I would want to go to the office what what will I be going and doing there that I can't do from home and there's obviously the collaboration aspects the meeting the people having this coffee um, coffee machine moment where you can have that little discussions about something you didn't think about but it's also so it needs to it will need to be created in a way that kind of enable this kind of discussions this kind of behavior and it's probably slightly different to what we've been doing so far um, in having our own desk in a specific area. Obviously, that'll be different. Uh, the needs are different for everyone. But I think what's important about the biophilic approach is, is more having this kind of human-centric approach. So as I said before, we might build these fantastic sustainable buildings and then we just put people inside. We need to think a little bit more about what are the tasks that need to be carried out in that, in that space and to enable people to get the most out of this environment. Thanks, Flavie. Yeah, I think that neatly gives us a good point to finish the discussion because it does boil down to people. People are using the buildings and people are living in the buildings that we're all talking about. So I just wanted to say thank you. It's been a really interesting discussion. I hope that our listeners enjoy it, but I hope it's obviously been valuable for you to kind of talk amongst yourself about the topic. And yeah, it looks like there's more to come and I really look forward to seeing the next phase of your work in this space. So thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks very much. For more information about us, visit iom3.org. Or to keep up to date with our latest news, follow us on social media using at IOM3 on Twitter and at the Institute of Materials, Minerals and Mining on LinkedIn. If you're interested in our upcoming podcasts or want to get involved, please subscribe to hear more from us through Apple, Google Podcasts or Spotify.